is also the founder and director of two uh, ashrams, one in Adaria in California and Madhavan, a sustainable monastery in Costa Rica. To be in his presence is, is definitely a spiritual experience. It's a great honor for me to introduce you to Holy Tripurari. So this was originally set up as a question and answer session. Um, so I hope everyone has some questions. Matthew, you have some questions? And there's also some questions that were sent in earlier. So I don't know if you would like to speak or we just start with those. Questions are fine. Um, there's a mixed audience, so there are people here that I've known for a long time, and there are people I'm meeting for the first time, and probably whose acquaintance with the tradition that you represent is, is limited at best, so some of the questions may be too low for some and too high for others. So um, be patient if, if the question's too high or if the question and answer is too low and you already know it. So, first question, <clears throat> I'm really trying to walk a path of divine love, but I get confused about how to be true to myself without being selfish. How can I know if I'm being selfish? Hmm. Well, selfishness is certainly unbecoming, but selflessness is not is easier said than done, also. And in order to arrive at selflessness, we have to embrace some degree of selfishness. Otherwise, we'll perish in the fire of uh, sacrifice, so to speak. Just like it's sometimes said that um, the guru is like fire. And so if the guru let's say, for example, represents a person who's walking the path and as has been put in the question, embodying love, then, and, and love is, arises out of sacrifice and so forth, then he or she is some kind of personification of sacrifice and love. And, and so sacrifice and fire, they kind of go together. Um, and... Therefore, sometimes, let's say, the guru has been compared to fire. And the uh, comparison is, is given in this connection uh, with the idea of bringing up the fact that we cannot live without fire, but we can't live in the fire either. <laughs> so, uh, without fire, you can't have heat, you can't have uh, you know, light, you can't, have, you can't cook and so forth. And so we need fire, but we have to find our own um, comfort zone, if you will, in relation to the fire. And so it is incumbent upon us, therefore, to, and, and the teacher, if, you know, in this example as well, to together to find a safe distance, a distance that will bring us closer to the ideal, to being that uh, fire, if you will, uh, metaphorically, of sacrifice and of love ourselves. And um, in doing that, sometimes we might get neurotic about wanting to be the fire, and then I'm not the fire, so I've got to be at a distance, I'm not good enough, and uh, there's a problem, it's the question kind of it takes me in that direction a little bit. I don't mean to say that the questioner is neurotic, but most of us are <laughs> to one extent or another. And this is a common kind of spiritual neurosis. Um, and I understand the question, but what I want to say really in, in answer to it is that, that it, you need to do this. You need to be selfish in order to be selfless on some level. And that need and how that will play out will be different for different people, according to their psychology, according to their physiology, and uh, according to where they are at in their eternal progress. And so it's not one shoe fits all, one size fits all. And sometimes in groups that becomes a problem because ones who are 
more progressive in one sense, aren't progressive enough to understand how everybody can progress in a natural um, way, and they try to impose their own standards upon others and and so forth. So there's a lot of confusion about this. It's a kind of a good good question, but again, I I I, I want to underscore that that you should feel all right about some degree of selfishness. It's necessary. If you want to, if we were to compare spiritual life to vertical growth, then I would compare the the selfishness or self-material concerns that arise in necessities to horizontal growth. So there's a way to look at these two things such that they work together. In other words, we should look at our horizontal growth as something that we have to do, like if you, let's say you want to jump and touch the stars. Touching the stars is your spiritual be-all and end-all. Well, it's good to start with two feet on the ground. If you're on one foot and you try to jump, you might fall all the way to the bottom. You might fall on your bottom. So uh, it's important to have to be in some a reasonable degree of material balance in your life. And that means uh, selfishness. Some taking has to be there. Let's say, for example, I'm an individual that feels unwhole without being in a relationship with a significant other, like most people. So I have some neediness, some personal neediness. I have some self-need. And based on that self-need, I seek such a relationship. But if I, if I see that seeking, that relationship, in the context of what my ultimate interest is, and I keep that in focus, and that being the vertical growth, and I'm doing this horizontal growth of getting a partner so that I can feel more whole, so that I will have the energy, enthusiasm, strength, and so forth, to engage in those types of practices and, and, and the sacrifices, so forth, that amounts to vertical growth. Indeed, I can see even how the hor- there's a way to see the horizontal growth as, as I'm talking about, as part of the vertical growth. After all, to use that example of a relationship, well, you know, it's not all fun, you know. <laughs> there's a lot of sacrifice that goes in order to, you know, if you want to have a relationship and as soon as it gets tough, you want to find another one, then, uh, you know, and another one and another one, you know, the lesson is, well, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of, it's magic, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, these infatuation and so forth. You've got to, got to see through that and, and get down to being, doing the work at hand, making the necessary sacrifice. So even in the context of that vertical growth, there's opportunity for sacrifice and growing and coming outside of your selfish needs and so forth. So, we have to take steps, and I would suggest that persons who try to walk a path of what is it, love and selflessness, they get some good guidance. This, my experience is like this, so I only speak from my own experience. I have uh, a good fortune in my life to have good guidance from spiritually um, advanced persons, my gurus, and and. Um, I'm made of of that. That's my own personal experience and perception, so I highly recommend that. Now, you know, that you have to find for yourself, but in connection with that, then you have a good someone to, you know, kind of help you find those particular, um, that particular balance between how selfish you have to be in order to progressively move in the direction of selflessness. So I can't give the particular answers that you should stop this particular thing and as I don't know the particular case. But in general, you should know, I believe, that some, as I say, some selfishness is necessary in order to be selfless. And when we ask this kind of question, there's a likelihood that you need more selfishness than not you're probably pushing yourself in such a way towards the ideal that you're, you're, rather than becoming fulfilled by your sacrifice, 
it's troubling you. And so you're being distracted uh, and you're not, it appears like you're being selfish, but you've, you, you're too far ahead of yourself. So, so the experience is not one that's fulfilling. So you need something, you need a partner, you need more money, you know, and you know, some person will need a little bit and some people will need more. Their psychology is different. Some people will need to eat more, some people need to eat less, and, and so on and so forth. So, um, at the same time, of course, we can also say that um, giving doesn't take place unless you feel the pinch. There's a, there's a story of a fellow, it's an Indian kind of fable, was a wealthy guy and he had, uh, well, he was a farmer, I should say, he grew grains and so... He was very wealthy and he had huge fields of grain. And One day he was in the field with one of his workers and the worker said to him, you know, why is it that uh, you're so wealthy but you never give anything to Krishna? You never give anything to God. And the man took some of the wheat uh, kernels or grains in, in his hand, the flour, and, and the wind came and, the, and he held it out and the wind blew that. And he said, what are you talking about? Govinda Namaha or Krishna Namasa. I offered the grain to Krishna, he said. So his, his idea was, whatever the wind comes, whatever the wind blows away, I offer that. <laughs> so that's the other side of, of the excess, you know, in, in, a, in, in the wrong direction. So, so there should be some pinching, but if I'm choking, you know, on the, on the giving, then, then that, then it be, be very active giving is going to be filled with some reluctance, some trepidation, some, some um, anxiety, and so forth. So, we have to be given enough that we feel the pinch, but not to the extent that we're uh, we're suffocating from it. And that's the individual kind of balance that requires a little intelligence, you know. A little, introspection, it requires a lot of in, in personal integrity, and it requires knowing yourself materially, even while your main interest is knowing yourself spiritually. If I say to you there's a difference between the atma, the self, the experiencer, and the body, which is experienced, and you are different from your mind, you are different from your body, you're a particle of unit of consciousness, and you have to realize that, and you become excited about such an idea. What I'm saying is that you, you kind of have to know your body <laughs> and your mind well enough that you can actually pursue your, your real self, because you're wrestling with that personality and its needs. They, they are perceived needs. The soul doesn't need to eat, and your body does, and so you've identified with the body, so in that sense you need to eat, but you need to be really um, as acquainted with your material necessities and your material uh, psychology and how it works uh, to go about it in a balanced way. Now, you, 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 you could be lucky and not know yourself at all materially and plunge yourself into spiritual life and, and get some realization and so forth, but um, the system of thought that I've been involved in for, for so many years, the tradition, it really does speak loudly about these two sides of uh, this horizontal development and the vertical development. We call it Varnashram, this horizontal development. It means knowing your material psychology, really, and being acquainted even with your physiology and, what, and its needs and so forth, and situating yourself such that those needs are met in a way that you're then free and inspired to pursue the vertical life. So they kind of go, go together. You know, it's, it's, it's a tough decision to make. Um, we, uh, I'll give you another way of thinking about it. Like in India, for example, and a lot of people's destiny is, is kind of thought out. It's already like you're born, and uh, it used to be like that in this country too. If you were born in a certain family uh, farm and you were gonna work on a farm, you know? They had kids to have workers. Well, the father wanted a son to help him in the business, so let's have a son. Maybe it's a daughter, so well, we'll put her to work too. You know, used to, family life used to be more pragmatic like that. Nowadays, we have 
in our modern society, we have more freedom to like, child's born, what are you going to be? What are you going to do? You know, it's just like, whatever you want, you know, it's, it's, you, you, you figure it out. And that's considered to be progressive. It might be, in some respects, it might not be. But so the Indian kind of a disposition, which we're, they're coming out of a more, you know, it's a third world country. It's a less, less, less economically developed country. There aren't as many freedoms and options and so forth that we have here as a result of our economy and whatnot. So um, their material life is kind of figured out often, very quickly. Oh, he's going to marry, and he's going to marry from, you know, this, within this group over here. And so a lot of the problems are already worked out. So then, <laughs> then they have the freedom to think about spiritual life. But they're also less reluctant to take a jump and do something risque and, and, and for, for example, forego family life and head to the Himalayas. And so that's maybe good, but it may be bad. It may, it may limit them. And, and, and when the, the opportunity is really presenting himself to the last minute, he or she wants to make sure, is this, right? and this is the time right now for me to renounce? And, and then your person from the West will just, hey, sounds good, you know, let's go to the Himalayas and uh, I'll become a rishi, you know, or a sadhu, and uh, off they go. And you know, that may work for the person, or he may, end up, he may end up just smoking hashish over there, you know, and, uh, you know, and growing long hair and thinking that uh, that's the be-all and end-all of, uh, of um, Himalayan yogic life and so forth. So, I mean, they're... But anyway, relative to our own culture, you know, there's a... I think... Um, the concept of the of Varnashram in our tradition is about psychological balance. And as we know, in this country, there's a lot of talk about psychological balance, and it's very much intertwined with with spiritual out spirituality and, and, and the personal integrity and accountability and so forth, and uh, uh, taking stock of who we are and how we think and what our motivations are and so forth. It's often very much tied to even defined as our spirituality. Now, I don't see it as that. I see it, as I say, as about horizontal growth, and it's only as valuable as it promotes vertical growth. So, I try it anyway. It's a big question. Okay, off to another. And also, if anybody develops a question while we're doing this, please chime in, because having your questions here live will be much better than... Or I can ask if there are any questions about the, the question, about the answer. Are there any questions about what we just talked about? Yes, sir. Well, since I was already put on the spot, I'm sure this will be a low-class question with a high-class answer. Um, you said before, uh, love comes from sacrifice. Yeah. Well, it comes from joy. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, that's a good question. What I mean by that is that... Um, I think the, the full expression of love is joy. But just like in art, if you see a beautiful picture, there's also work to that. There's kind of math to that. There's so many dots and, you know, only the artist sees that and does all that hard work and so forth. Or if you get to music, there's a kind of an underlying math and so forth as well. So, so for, for love, and which is an ex, in, in its highest sense is an expression of joy, it's an overflowing of being fulfilled. And after all, if love is giving, what can you give if, if you don't have anything? So along the lines of your reasoning, I agree that love is about joy, and joy is overflowing and so forth. But how will you arrive at the overflowing? That's the question. How will you arrive at spontaneous giving that comes out of being full? Well, the way in which we get full is, well, we have to get empty of what we're presently full of. <laughs> and, we're full of <laughs> and we're full of a lot of, you know, things, <laughs> unfortunately. A lot, of, a lot of desires, a lot of um, attachments, and uh, selfish preoccupations and so forth. And, um, and we even have a sense of ourself that is much defined by our what we think is ours and our attachment to things. And, and because none of those things really belong to us, our sense of self is rather not very stable. In other words, 
I might think I miss a so and so, and he may divorce me, and I'm not. The, you know, that's an you know an external sense, but even esoterically, internally speaking, we have a, an identity, a material persona that's derived from our attachments, and that material persona is one that can't be sustained. Really, it's 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 doomed. I mean, we're all going to die, but we're struggling to maintain it, and so we have to be on the take, so to speak. So, to get full, so that we can love, and engage in such a joyous, joyous act that love is in its fullest expression, we have to start to sacrifice, in a calculated way. In other words, when you cannot give spontaneously, then you should give in a calculated way. I should give because I should give and I know that I'll grow by giving. That's one kind of giving. It's not the full face of love, but it, it's what will promote love, which will, it will empty us out and make us full. So in the, there's two ends of the spectrum. On the full end of the spectrum, well, yeah, love is full and it's just joy. Therefore, we say that Godhead is anandamayo byasat, is is joy personified. Krishna is Mr. Joy, and uh, he's just overflowing with love. Hmm? And here we are down here, just you know, on the very opposite end of the spectrum, and we want to go there. So if I say to you, well, love is just joy, you know, you're not left with any mechanism to get there, so to speak. But if I speak to you about the underlying work, so to speak, uh, that that will promote love, the acts that will, that will, will bring about love, hmm? then, of course, no one want to listen. That's when they all go home. <laughs> we say, oh, the goal is beautiful and just joy. And we, yeah. Now, to get there, then we have another appointment. So, <laughs> so it's important to sometimes speak about love as in terms of sacrifice. And, and let's face it, okay, you know, every parent knows that love is has sacrifice um, in, in underlying it. Hmm? Um, sometimes it's just just not out of joy that we give to our kids. So, you know, <laughs> we give in to our kids. As we're making a sacrifice there. Another question or anything else along those lines? Yes. Of course, the word sacrifice is uh, a Latin word which means to make something sacred. Uh-huh. That's nice. Thank you for that. What's the word? Sacrifice, which is to make something sacred, which is not so much in the sense of um, something that is very painful, but understanding that is something that we choose to do, to, sac to make our life sacred. Which may be painful. We may have to give up the profane that we're attached to. Sacrifice, sacred, very nice, thank you. So, what else? I've heard that the material world is an illusion, but it seems pretty real to me. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Some people teach that material world is an illusion. And by that they mean that it doesn't exist, that it's not real. In the bhakti tradition, we don't teach that. <coughs> we teach that it's real. And it is. And it's no wonder that you feel that it's pretty real. And just to kind of philosophize it away, they use a word called mithyam. Mithyam. Brahma Satyam Jagan Mitya. It means that uh, consciousness is, Brahman is real and the world is, well, Mityam. It doesn't quite mean false, it means Mityam. There's no English translation for it. But, but basically, it's saying that it, it doesn't really exist. So it's an illusion in that sense. It doesn't really exist. Now, in the Bhakti school, we have a different idea of that. We, we, our school is technical, technically called, with relation to the world, a Shakti Parinam Vad. It means that uh, the world is, is constituted of a particular Shakti, or power, energy, potency of the Godhead. Really two. One potency is us, 
we call Jeev Shakti, the other is, is matter, it's Maya Shakti. Well, consciousness and matter, small particle of consciousness, ourselves, and the whole of the material existence. And we are animating the whole show, so to speak, by desire, which is prerogative of consciousness. We're animating the whole show. We turn the whole thing on. We turn by the presence of consciousness in relation to matter. Matter takes forms and shapes and, and so forth. The driver, for example, gives meaning to the car. There's no meaning to the car without driver. There's no meaning to matter without consciousness. If there were, who would know about it? Who would care? Consciousness cares, in other words. Consciousness knows. So if matter was meaningful, independent of consciousness, well, who would know about it? Matter is not conscious. It's inert. But it's animated and brought to life by, in conjunction with, with consciousness. And we're a unit of consciousness. So um, the world's real. And at the same time, it's not an illusion, but it's illusory. A little bit different. And that means that it's not what it appears to be. It is, but it's not what it appears to be. To use an old saying, if I might be slightly crass for a moment, it's not a bowl of cherries, so you think you know the other part. It's the pits, they say. So it's, it looks like one thing. They say it in Bengali. It's, it said uh, that, uh, Two things I said here. The world looks like ananda, looks like joyful opportunity. Um, but actually, my pursuit of joy in relation to things that don't endure, which is all things, is really the beginning of my suffering. Because the more you like it, the worse it is when you can't keep it. Hmm? So, this is a problem. So it looks like one thing, but because all the things that are presenting themselves are in constant state of flux and transformation, then I embrace one thing and it turns into something else. You know, I really wanted something and I maxed my credit card out to buy it and it turned out not to be what I thought it was and I still got to pay for it. And now it's a problem for me. The thing that I wanted that was just going to make me happy and I was attached to it, I'm still attached to it. <laughs> I can't get rid of it, I owe for it. But it's not, <laughs> it's not making me happy anymore, it's making me miserable. So, so there's kind of a magic, if you will, and it's illusory. It's there. It's like you got the three shells and the peas. You know, you think the peas over here, but it's actually over here. So, it says two things. It says the world looks like it's a place of happiness, but actually, it's it's like it's like um, it's like poison for for the one in pursuit of enduring happiness because it never comes. You get an appetizer. But I mean, if you're hungry, an appetizer is only going to go so far. After a while, you're going to get indigestion from that. If you just keep eating appetizers, you never get the square meal. There's a carrot that's just around the corner. It's going to come by, by acquisition. It doesn't matter how much you acquire. You will only want to acquire more. You'll never be satisfied unless we factor in some spiritual thinking and understanding and, and so forth and so on. Then you can reach a certain point that you, you feel, as I said earlier, comfortable and materially whole, and then pursue the spiritual life. So, so the material world is real, but it's not what it appears to be. It's not just um, 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 what, what, is, what appears to be joy is the beginning of suffering. And Krishna Prema Rabbuta Charita, the wonderful Charita, the wonderful character, of Krishna Prem, which means love of Krishna, love of God, is that it looks just the opposite. It looks like poison. Oh my God, I have to do that. Like monastic life in particular, you mean. I've got to go live over there and away from the world and, uh, and um, no possessions. 
you know, and so and there's a lot of things. That, or any d d degree to which spiritual life presents itself as the need to give and to sacrifice, then it's it, as much as we're a taker, that's going to feel painful and look unbecoming in a higher sense. Let me take it, this is for just practice. I look at the spiritual practice and when I get down to what it really involves and the hard work that it is, it's not as attractive as when we just, like I said earlier, we just talked about the flowery idea of it, which is a reality too, but the work to get there is not so attractive. So it looks, it looks disconcerting. Hmm? But the fact of the matter is that the inside, it's anandamai, it's full of joy. Who does it right? Inside is full of joy. And you take it to a higher level. I'll take it to a very high level. Hmm? Chaitanadev, uh, the, the, the very kind of founder of our particular lineage, who is the uh, um, considered to be the uh, descent of Krishna and Radha combined in the, in the age in which we live, about five hundred years ago, in the chanting of of the of the uh, kirtan of the names of Krishna. Hmm? he would fall over and uh, practically drown in a pool generated by his own tears. Now, if you look at that and go, I don't think I want that. I don't think I want to like just be walking and falling over and drowning and he's crying all the time, you know, <laughs> melting and just like, it's, it's, and these are, this is a few hundred years ago, but the, the, there are nu numerous um, biographies and so forth detail in his ecstasies from this chanting. That's why we keep chanting. We think, it worked for him, it might work for me now. There's a, there's a philosophy for that too. There's re good reason to believe that. And, you, and before you're melting, there are other things that come. So, so um, he was in such ecstasy, and he was constantly, as I say, crying, and, sh and tears were pouring out of his eyes like, like, like there was a syringe or something, and showering other people. And so you look at that and you think, well, I don't know if I want, he looks troubled, you know. Some people, without understanding the, the philosophical underpinnings and the spiritual reality, thought he, he, that historically he must have been an epileptic or something like that. You know, it was a way of like taking something very beautiful and spiritual and trying to fit it into the framework where there is no spirituality. There must be a material explanation. I guess he was an epileptic. We don't hear epileptics have tears shooting out of their eyes. I mean, he had other symptoms of falling over and becoming stunned and, and so forth. And, but all these symptoms are also described in the sacred texts. And they correspond with certain spiritual emotions and ecstasies within and so forth. So we have our own way of explaining it. And so, and, and, but on its face, it looks like you don't want to go there, but Krishna Premerad Bhutta Charit, it said. The beautiful characteristic, the charit of Prem, of love of Krishna, is that on the outside it looks disconcerting, but on the inside it's full of ananda, full of ecstasy. And uh, that also says something to us about how love, spiritual love, camouflages itself to an extent. And if you want it, you have to look very closely because it will appear perhaps differently than you might have thought it was. And, and you have to look very, therefore, nityam bhagavata seva is said. You have to, like these texts like bhagavata describe these things. You have to understand them pretty well. You have to look pretty closely. You have to, it means, nityam bhagavata seva means you have to pay attention or you'll misconstrue this, misunderstand this. So, love, after all, is difficult to understand. People could be fighting like anything, and you try to get in the middle of it, and it's actually, they're in love. Mm -hmm. Right? Stop that fighting. Call the police. And, and then they look at you know, and the next day like, you're their enemy. <laughs> Lovers, you know, they have, uh, if they really like one another, they can get really angry with one another. Also, it's also possible. I'm not advocating domestic violence. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But. So, um, so the world is here, it's real, but it's not what it appears to be. So it's, it, it really is here, and you really are experiencing it, and you're, what you're experiencing is based on how you're approaching it. Hmm? 
And there is another way to approach it. So what we recommend is that because we're too close to it, I mean subjectively, we're attached to it and its things, then you have to step back from that attachment and then you have an objective view of what it is. If you're too close to it, you can't see it for what it is. Mother named her son Lotus-Eyed. He was blind. Mother named her blind son Lotus-Eyed. So she's blind. She's blinded by her affection. And she's, oh, see, well, he has Lotus-Eyed. Everyone else says he's blind. She doesn't have the objectivity. That's a nice thing, and so forth, too. It can be used in a beautiful way. But love turns faults into ornaments. That's a fact. But the point I'm making in this connection is that attachment causes us to see, not to see things as they are. So if we step back, then we can see the world for what it is, and then visvam purnam sakayati. Then you can, Bhakti says, you can enter into the world and interact with it in a different way. How to be in it, but not of it. That means how to be in it, interact with the things, but not be attached to the things. And to see that, and not be attached to them, is to see them in relation to whom they actually belong. To be attached is not to see to whom they belong and to think they're mine. But they're not mine. You know, we're born with nothing and we believe we can't take anything with us. So, <laughs> it's not ours. We think it is, but if it's not ours, that doesn't mean it doesn't belong to someone. So, knowledge of the proprietorship of all things turns all things to life. This is what animates the world. You see, When you see a thing in relation to whom it actually belongs and then you interact with it accordingly, then you're interacting with that thing, if you will, in terms of its real life, rather than interacting with that thing in terms of how you see it is and should be according to your need and attachment. It's a very different uh, perspective. The, the one, the attached look, makes the world dead. That's why we get bored. There's not enough going on here. But if you see the things in relation to whom they belong, and bhakti is supposed to be a means of excavating the connection all things have with their source and employing them in relation to that source. And then what they really are, what their real utility is, is in life is, is quite different than what we conceived of what they were in our needy and attached perspective. And so the world becomes animate. That's why Golok is said to be alive. Everything is alive there. Hmm? This is the idea. So um, the world is real, hmm? but we're, our angle of vision on it is not real. It's wrong. So if we change our angle of vision, then so so in this way, bhakti is not about running away from a world. That, it's not a world denying philosophy. It's actually a world embracing philosophy. Does that help? Interesting. Yes. Question. This is probably a hello question, but <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, it's high for you. That's fine. Um, back when George Harrison first released My Sweet Lord. I had no way of knowing what that song was about. But what I did know is that when I sang it, it took me to a higher state of consciousness. And I knew nothing of meditation. I knew, you know, I was raised in a Methodist church. and But I would sing that song, and all of a sudden, I was just taken away. Mm. Can you explain the mechanics of the Kirtan as far as raising the consciousness? Mm-hmm. We had an interesting discussion about that last night at some length. Um, but um, briefly, I want to say that if you touch fire, you'll get burnt, right? right. Whether you think so or not, um, just basically speaking. And so, um, uh, Kirtan is of the, the nature uh, that um, by coming in touch with that, then 
there will be an effect that is good for us, auspicious for us, uplifting and so forth, whether we can perceive it or not. We may be able to perceive it and, and, and sometimes we may not be able to perceive it. And ultimately you'll be able to perceive it and experience it and, and, and be part of that and t- transformation and uplifting and, and so forth. But it has inherent um, power. Kirtan is a limb of bhakti. So kirtan actually pertains to bhakti. It doesn't really pertain to yoga or to... Um, I mean, bhakti is a kind of yoga. That's another way of talking about it. But there's a yogic discipline um, that has its limbs. It's, you know, it consists of this, 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 this. And kirtan is not one of them. Like if you study ashtanga yoga, okay, which is a typical eightfold yoga, then it has its limbs of yama, niyama, asana, pranayam, pratyahar, dharana, dhyana, samadhi. There's eight, right? So kirtan is not mentioned there. Then if you have, uh, so yoga is a marg, a path unto itself. And then you have um, karma marg. That's another marg. Another path. Marg means path, the karma marg. Kirtan, and it has its, what it's constituted of. Kirtan is not mentioned as, as part of that. Then there's this, the, the path of knowledge. Kirtan is not mentioned as part of the, what the constituents of 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 Gyanmarg. We come to Bhakti Marg, Kirtan is mentioned and is emphasized also. Bhakti Marg is about love, love of God. And so this is what it kind of focuses on. Gyanmarg focuses on knowledge of the self as different from the body. Karma Marg emphasizes material acquisition or act working in such a way as to move away from material acquisition by giving up the fruits of one's work. Yoga marg is about paramatmasayuja or an abstract form of love of God we call like shanta, shantarasa. But bhakti marg, in the, in the, in that especially this bhakti marg in which this Krishna kirtan that you're talking about comes from, its prayojan, its ideal, its goal, is ecstatic and romantic love of God, to participate in the romantic life of the Absolute. It's a very esoteric idea, the heart of the Absolute. So now when you think about romance, and, and you know, in romantic life we naturally, we don't sit, we, don't, we, we, we sing, right? It's, you know, all these so many songs are composed about romantic life. And how much, to what extent is romantic life and music connected? It's it's considerable, right? It's almost like as I as I start to feel in love or start to feel unenloved, then I better I have to write a song about it. I got to sing about it, you know, in 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 in, in Samboga or in uh, in 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 uh, Vipralamba, in, in separation and in loss. Or in gain, in, in union, it's just the, 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 these things go together. So kirtan is is about the romantic life of the absolute. The Hari Krishna kirtan is about the uh, the lila, the divine lila of Radha and Krishna, their interaction and so forth. It's a very esoteric idea. So it's singing about that, and. This is a very private aspect, if you will, of the absolute. It's it's only accessible. The inner life, the romantic life of God, it's kind of a funny idea, I guess, but it's uh, only accessible to a certain type of people who who want to have intimacy with God, to to love God in intimacy. A lot of people want to love God in in awe and reverence, right? Om and and you know, like, like that. But in the Bhakti school, the, this Krishna Kirtan is so much emphasized. The idea is for intimacy with the Godhead, where the finite and the infinite become so close that the infinite doesn't look infinite anymore. It looks finite. Krishna looks finite. You seen the pictures of Krishna? He looks like a cute fellow, you know, adolescent, playing the flute, middle-sized. He's not like everything coming from me. It doesn't look like that. Of course... 
because he's only playing, we should consider he has all power, because it takes power to play. He has nothing to do. It means, wow, he must be pretty powerful. So he's depicted in that way, in this way, and and what these mystics who are doing this chanting are talking about is this romantic life of the absolute, where the absolute takes takes a shape by the force of love, for the sake of intimacy between the finite, like ourselves, and the infinite, the special dimension of. Uh, so it's it's a kind of a private. It's called Sreta Dweep. It means like private island type of affair. So um, so this kirtan is about that, and it has extraordinary power because if you start talking and singing about the romantic life of God, you're going to get his attention because that's what the God is more preoccupied with than anything else. Far more than the creation. Oh, the world, I created. People aren't interested in me. Wind it all up again. Create it again. Therefore, he's depicted... This aspect of the God in Hinduism is depicted as sleeping. He goes to sleep. He wakes up and the world comes into being. He gets tired of it. Nobody's interested in me. Wind it all back up again. That's the Mahavishnu. Then again, try it again. You know, It's like this. So, uh, <laughs> even I come, I make avatar into the world. Practically nobody's interested. And if they're interested, they're not interested really in what I'm all about. What, what makes me tick. You see, in our tradition, we're a little different. Most people think in religious circles that, that God is the most worshipable object. And we are concerned with the worshipable object of God. That's pretty peculiar. So it, as, as Krishna is the kind of the, the, the romantic heart of the absolute, we see he's interested in Radha. He's chasing her everywhere. We think, this is quite interesting. And that Radha personifies highest and purest love. So it's really a doctrine in which love is supreme, as John Coltrane used to say. Love is supreme. Even God and the jiva boat, the individuals who are drawn to, to this union in, in love. So we're, we say Jai Radhe, we're celebrating the, the, the extent to which love, bhakti, has the power to conquer the infinite. It's, and, and, and put, the, put the infinite in your hands. It's not like conquer, controlling. Radha has got him in the palm of her hands, but she always treats him like, you know, like he's the superior, nonetheless. So it's very interesting, but the point being that Kirtan is about that. And, and so this really perks his interest. Like, wow, somebody's interested in that about me. Like, if, for, example, for example, if you're interested in me because... You know, I've got a lot of things. And if you get in touch with me, you might get some of them. Well, how much am I going to be interested in you? I'll give you something to get rid of you. Go ahead, take this and, and have a nice day. Yeah. Now, if you come and, and, and... So a lot of people worship God because they want something from God. They worship God, but God's in the background. There was a one of the... Um, God brothers of, of my um, my guru, who they were both had the same guru. He was uh, sent to Europe to preach in the 1920s about these topics, you know, and see if that had any uh, there was any interest. And he was in Germany, and some uh, Christian people invited him to a drama about a theistic drama. So they performed the drama on the stage and and whatnot. And God was in the drama; he was in the balcony, and. Every now and then in the, in the play, God's role would be to come out and say, I bless you. Then you go back in the balcony. Then later on, you come out and say, I condemn you. You know, sound of lightning bolts, you know. And he's up in the balcony. So they asked him afterwards, What do you think of the drama? He said, It was very nice, very interesting, but you guys kept God in the balcony. In our theology, we put him on the main stage, not in the balcony. It's a very different idea. Let me explain it in another way. There are said to be, we do kirtan of the names of God, but there are two types of names, basically. Indirect names and direct names. Indirect names are names like Allah means Almighty One, Buddha, the Enlightened One, you know, the Savior. 
the Savior, the, uh, the, uh, uh, there are names about his powers, and all in relation to us. They're big names for some people, like he's almighty, he's the all-powerful one from which all the power comes from. So if I want any power to do anything, I'll ask him. And um, these indirect names are all names of God in, in relation to God's functioning um, in connection with the world to facilitate our activities, basically, here. So the main stage is us, right? And God is like, bring him into the picture. He has a part in our life. This is kind of a backwards way of looking about it from our theological perspective. It is, it's, a, it's, a, it's a reality, but it's a secondary aspect of God. It's the part, like I said, you know, that puts, that's kind of boring to God, if you will, the whole the world, the illusion, the ignorance of ourselves, our attachment. All, all these people running around thinking everything belongs to them. <laughs> it all belongs to me. And here they are running around thinking, I try to tell them. You know, some of them I show them the whole thing set up to show them it's not true. They keep fighting it, you know. I come and I give good teachings. I send my gurus and so forth. And what can you do? Go back to sleep, you know. Again, create. So it's just like one aspect. Now there are sec there are primary names of God. They're different. They talk about, for example, Radhanath, Jashodanandana. Hmm? They talk about Krishna, God in relation to those who have given everything to him, who want nothing from him, have given everything, their whole selves, their whole being, entirely in sacrifice and service and love to him. Got a, he looks at these people like differently. In fact, these are the people with whom he takes on, in relation to, he takes on a finite-like appearance so that there can be intimacy between them. These people are interested in what makes him tick. And so he's interested in them. And this Hare Krishna is about those kinds of people, that type of, that aspect of God. So when we're here in this world and we're chanting those names, this gets his attention. He says, what's going on down there? <laughs> Somebody's getting it. Somebody's interested in me. Krishna's on the, God is on the main stage. It's not like God's the Father providing, taking care of everything. We're taking care of God. Yashodananda means, the, it's a funny name, but it means, it, it's, it's, it talks about loving God as if you were the parent of God and you were taking care of God. Now, who's more central, the parent or the child? In other words, the child is all self-centered, right? And the parent's love is, so the center is the, is the child. So if you make Krishna the center, then it's a very, and, and you're taking care of him, then he's in the center stage, so to speak. So anyway, this Hare Krishna is about, about a very intimate aspect of the Absolute. So it, it has a power to draw not only the Godhead's attention, but in an extreme way. And so it, it even if, therefore, even if we hear it, as in your case, without knowing anything about it, then we may experience, there's, there's potential, there's possibility to experience something very extraordinary and uplifting, which is only a glimpse of what, if you were to do that systematically, in a yogic kind of sense, under good guidance, what possibilities lie there in the kirtan. And kirtan is also very easy to do. Like I said, you weren't doing it yourself. You're just hearing say, Hare Krishna. And you know, you go along, sing along, and all of a sudden you find yourself being transported, so to speak. And I, so, um, you know, you can't just do meditation driving down the road, right? You gotta stop, you gotta get out of the car, sit in a quiet place, compose yourself, be alone. But see the power of the kirtan. You're in a traffic jam, and all of a sudden you're being transported. And, and um, right? So, so it's it's a very efficacious means uh, of spiritual upliftment, and um, so it's no wonder that you felt that, or anybody can from time to time. It doesn't mean it will happen to everybody every time, but if, that it happens to one person, and if it happens to more than one, means that power is there, that, that potential is there, and it's alive. 
the Nam mantra of Krishna, Hare Krishna is alive, so it's a, a, it asserts itself as it sees fit. And and for that, from our perspective, there may be no rhyme or reason why it shows itself to one person in such a way that they get a profound experience, another person may not. They will, they'll be affected nonetheless, whether they can perceive it is, is perhaps another thing. Eventually they will. So that's, when I, what I want to say else further about it is that, if, that there's some type of, in, the, in, the, in Krishna Nam, the name of Krishna, there's Krishna's outgoing. The name is outgoing. And, and so it has, um, I'll give you an example and conclude with this. There were two policemen in India, and one said to the other one, you know, it's really a problem for us that our God is a thief. Because Krishna is depicted as stealing butter and yogurt and leaving his own family to steal butter from another family because it tastes better if it's stolen. And, uh, you know, if there's some excitement to it and, and so forth. He's not depicted as, you know, just... He's a little tricky and uh, underhanded and so forth in some ways and mischievous and so forth. And, and Chirchana, he's a butter thief. So... He says, look, we're trying to teach people don't steal, and our God's a thief. It's a tough job. <laughs> so the other guy says to him, the other policeman says, no, it's not like that. It's, it's really, we're lucky that God's a thief. And he said, well, what do you mean? He said, because Krishna and Krishna Nam, the name of Krishna Nam, different. And the thieves don't care for high walls and locked doors. And that's exactly what we've erected around our heart high walls and a locked door in a very small little world of our attachments. And he comes in anyway. In the form of his name, he goes anyway. He doesn't care. He goes over the wall and through the locked door. And you aren't even, you know, you're trying to keep him out and still, Hare Krishna, why are they playing that song? Because it comes in, the, you know, as an example. So he said, we're lucky that the God's a thief, because if he wasn't a thief, we've got our hearts so locked up, there's no hope for us, for it being open and letting these attachments out. Not only, not only does he send them out, so nice. In the marketplace of the heart, so many shops have opened themselves to get our attention. Buy me, take me, you need me, and so forth. Krishna Nam comes for free, without even being asked. He comes in the heart, sets up shop. He offers something better than any of the other shops at a cheaper price than all of them. Beats everyone in the market. And so, very special. Very kind of special spiritual practice. And therefore, that's why you see, as I began, it's not part of Yoga Marg, it's not part of Gan Marg, it's not part of Karma Marg, but in Yoga Marg, Gan Marg and Karma Marg, you'll find all kinds of people doing Kirtan. They've tried to incorporate it into their path. Krishna, Kirtan is really meant for Krishna. It's Vishnu Bhakti. It's a limb of Vishnu Bhakti, so it's meant for Vishnu. It's not meant for Shiva. It's not meant for Ganesh. It's not meant for Durga. You will not find anywhere Durga say, chant my name and your life will be perfect. Hmm? You never hear anywhere in any Shiva Purana or any text of the Shaivites, do Kirtan about me. Vishnu, Shiva doesn't say that. Ganesh doesn't say that. Do kirtan about me and your life will be perfect. There's no such thing anywhere in a sacred text like this. Kirtan is for bhakti and bhakti is for Vishnu. Vishnu means Krishna. And Krishna in particular, Krishna kirtan. Kirtan can be done of Nam or of Leela. Songs about the Leela, the, the interaction of Radha and Krishna. So, so this is particularly for Krishna. But it's so nice that people bring it in and they, into the into the Ganmarg, for example, where the deity might be Shiva, and then they do Shiva Kirtan. I mean, that's not a bad thing, you know what I'm saying. It just it speaks to us of the power and the efficacy of, of Kirtan. <coughs> so if you do it in relation to Krishna, then the result, then you have everything lined up. You know, it's, that's who it's really meant for, who's going who's to appreciate it the most, who it's more, more naturally uh, lends itself to, Krishna. Krishna is Nietzsche's, you know, God. He said if there's a God, he'd be a dancer. Can I summarize just real briefly to make sure that I have this right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> what I'm understanding is is that uh, the reason this resonated with me so is that Krishna was able to get into my heart 
even though I wasn't aware of it. And because he resonates at a, a, a different, he resonates a different type of energy than the other gods. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. It's it's, it's a it's an energy of of love and joy and not so much condemnation. Well, yeah, that's that's there's none of that there. So that's what love why, turns faults into ornaments, as I said. So that's so. why I was so uplifted by that. Yeah, that's a pretty good summary. Thank you, thank you for asking. Yes, sir. It seems, this is a worldly question, it seems that there's an increasing polarization, my state versus your state, my religion versus yours, my right. east versus your west, and red versus green, and Republican, Democrat, and it just goes on and on. And it just, it seems to be becoming more vitriol is involved in, is this all going someplace? Is this the, the, before the explosion where it comes together? Uh-huh. Um, you know, um, I think personally that the world isn't in some ways much different now than it's ever been, but that we're more aware of how bad it is thanks to the internet and other such things. We're more aware of how bad it is. Um, it's, well, you know, to use a term coined by maybe Darwin or one of his followers, it's the survival of the fittest. It's a pretty mean, mean place. In the Bhagavatam it says, Jivo, Jivasa, Jivanam. It's the same thing as Darwin. The world, one living being is food for another. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty mean, mean place. So, um, But, you know, now you're, people are more aware of it, they're more connected with how they feel and their differences and, uh, um, you know, for example, political life. I mean, people are so much more in this country aware of political life now. Than it, there, were, there were times when Christians didn't participate in politics. There was a time when Christianity was basically a, more or less an unspoken tenet that we don't get involved in politics you know, some, whatever it was, 80 years ago, they, were, they elected a guy, you know, practically. They got so involved. Um, so people are more politically aware now than ever before in this country because of so much information. You, you can't, like, almost avoid it. I mean, there were periods where you might not even know who the president was. You know, you, you're just living on your farm and you didn't get time to vote or whatever. You didn't... There were people coming around to your door, or things showing up in your email, and you didn't have a television, and, and so on. So there's so much more information, and the information makes it uh, available to us the extent to which people have differences from one another, which is what the world's about. We're all seeing the world through the framework of our own little mind, and it's a very small picture, and we're trying to like make that the whole picture. And so there's discord. Where is it all going? Well, it's, it's um, you know, in a bigger sense, it's going down kind of, you know, it's, 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 it's uh, the world from the Hindu perspective and all, it, it, it's not something that endures. It, it does unfold, uh, fold in and then it folds out. It comes and goes, comes and goes, comes and goes, something like that. So, um, you know, without going into the details, which is not my expertise of, world politics or social dynamics and so forth. I'm not unaware of things, but um, um, I don't know, you know, if it's particularly any worse than ever before. Uh, I mean, it's always bad. People are always living on all living beings in the framework of their little mind. And so, but the more they can be aware of that, the more they can realize we have differences, the more uh, angst and... Uh, and, and argumentation is, uh, you know, can arise from that, and uh, so in that sense, it may be worse. We're more, you know, aware of it, and that should serve as negative impetus for doing something about it, which is should be done on, on an individual level to change yourself, you know, to go in a spiritual direction. Don't wait for everybody else to do that. At the same time, I suppose. You know, as it's just a side note, I kind of look at the United States as like, as um, 
you know, the Roman Empire or something. So I think it's this inevitable kind of a reality that uh, it's going to play itself out. And, and uh used to be England, you know, was the biggest country. Then it was the United States. And whoever the biggest is the biggest exploiter. And after a while, you know, things go around and you know, come, come back around. So everything will change. And that's just the norm. That's just the norm. So take it as, and there's sufficient amount of it, uh, negative impetus, to move in a different direction, to move in a spiritual direction. So, how long have we been discussing? Since when? Only been a little over an hour. Some people may say, you may say, you can listen forever. About one more question. Okay. Question? One more question. Something to say about that last one. Okay. Really Comments. <laughs> um, I'm just thinking of looking at that in another way, too. There's so much out there now with the internet and the communication. So now, for the first time, we're getting to know so many different views, you know, and so in that way, I think it's a useful thing. Um, and, and that, in a sense, also takes you out of yourself because you're suddenly bombarded with everybody, you know. So you're you're having to kind of listen to everything. Mm-hmm. and uh, can make you humble. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of different opinions out there. Some of them are pretty good, yeah. <laughs> Well-reasoned. Yeah. So, yeah, that's true, too. All right, well, I thank everybody for their time, question, interest in these subject matters, and, um, and I uh, thank my hosts for being so gracious to keep having me come come back here and I hope to visit again in in the future. Thank you very much.